0: them all set up. I think everybody's online and everybody's here. Y'all look fairly good. <laughs> <laughs> now, if I would say to you, you all look really, really terrific, wouldn't that be lying? <laughs> four, the four, hour. Yeah, we, four, just we'll If I seven, added that. Anyway, <laughs> welcome everyone. Good to see you. I hope you're, uh, able to download the notes or have them on your phone or something, because I want to do a lot of introductory things today uh, from that note packet that uh, are are important for the Book of Romans before we actually get to the book. So uh, if you have those, great. If not, just listen. A couple of introductory things uh, about the book itself. I thought I'd comment a little bit on the the city of of Rome itself. Uh, Paul, as you know, does not get to Rome, and that's really recorded for us at the end of the book of Acts, uh, where he will be in prison and all that. But uh, it's important that he writes to this church. Uh, If we understand chapter 16 of the book of Romans correctly, there were five house churches in Rome. (coughs) Paul identifies the leaders. Of the house churches at the end of the book itself, I think you know uh, just a couple of things that are important. Rome, Rome was the imperial city of the empire. I think everybody knows that. That's where the Caesar resided. Um, but it's also where a, a, a churches had been planted, and the Church of Christ was growing there. What seems to have um, facilitated this growth is that in AD 64, the city of Rome burned. And if you remember the story, I think some of you know a little bit about the history of of the Roman Empire. Nero was the Caesar, and he blamed the fire on the Christians. And he lined the Appian Way, which is the main road heading from the south into Rome. He lined the Appian Way with crucified Christians. And that, uh, as always happens, uh, it it seems bizarre, but it, 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 it seems counterintuitive, but it is the truth. When persecution occurs, the church spreads. One historian says, that the time the persecution comes down, This it spreads, church spreads. And that's what happened. The church grew as a result of those persecutions, but the church, of course, began to experience significant persecution. And the Marmitaean prison, I don't know if any of you have ever visited Rome, almost always when you visit it, they show you the Marmitaean prison, which was more like a dungeon. But that's where the main imprisonment of the Christians occurred. And then... Uh, in addition to that, they began to take refuge in some of the catacombs. Again, if you've ever visited Rome, usually you visit one of the catacombs and there were, they'll show you those if you ever visit them. There were underground churches there. They were really not places where they buried their dead. Catacombs were places that Rome buried their dead. It predates Christianity by hundreds and hundreds of years. But it was a place of refuge and security for them. So Paul's writing to in one sense, the most important city in the world at that time, at least politically and militarily uh, and economically. Paul is the author. Almost no one disputes that, except crazy liberal individuals who don't care about the authority of God's word at all. But it is undisputably written by Paul. He wrote it in the third missionary journey. He is in Corinth when he writes the book. It's about, as far as we can determine, it's the spring of AD 57, when he writes uh, the letter to to the to the uh, to the churches in Rome. Uh, why does he write the letter? And this has been honestly uh, a tremendous amount of discussion as to why he actually wrote the letter. One thing we do know, and, and you you get this sense as you read through the end of the book, he was planning to go to Spain. He had. His strategy had been, Paul's strategy had been, plant key churches in the Eastern Mediterranean world. And you think of where he planted churches, Athens, Philippi, Corinth, Ephesus, etc., and disciple the leadership and then move on. And so that that itinerant church planting strategic ministry, from his perspective, he planted enough key strategic churches in the Eastern Mediterranean. He now wanted to plant similar churches in the Western Mediterranean so he planned to go to spain and he tells the people of rome he's going to spain and he wants to stop off on his way to spain now he's going to get to spain and are going to get to rome in a very different way than he anticipated and so that that is the part so he wanted to tell them about it and obviously he was seeking their support prayer for support and financial support to do that he is very interested in the roman church because of its central location and he of course wanted to. Teach them, this is what he says at the beginning, teach them doctrinal truth. And I'm so glad he decided to do that, because the result of that effort is the most important book in the New Testament in terms of doctrine. There is no book in the New Testament more important to doctrine and theology than the book of Romans. And so in his desire to uh, go to Spain, get their involvement, get their support, he's also telling them, I want to leave with you. Important summary of important doctrinal truths. And so in doing that, he writes what some have called the Constitution of Christianity. It's the most important book in terms of doctrine, and it's it's just
1: masterful. So, so Jim, good question. Yes, please. Um so your third point was he's so he's put some key churches in the eastern nor, the northeast east Mediterranean. He wanted to the move the Mediterranean, Eastern Mediterranean, yes. Right. So he wanted to push towards the Western Mediterranean. That's how does right. it compare to, was it was at Mark, the start of the Coptic Church in Egypt. So how does it compare to the southern coast of the Mediterranean and pushing towards um, Algeria, um, Liberia? Yeah.
0: Well, that's, that's a really good question because there uh, there seems to be some evidence and even unrecorded collaboration between paul and others because you're correct the other disciples other apostles had planted key churches as well and you're right mark uh the churches key churches in egypt and so on because paul does not visit egypt he doesn't plant churches in egypt why because other apostles were doing that and in addition thomas at least tradition tells us thomas planted churches in india and uh (coughs) excuse me I'm still struggling with some of this bronchitis. I'm on medicine. My doctor, I saw him the other day again. He said, well, it takes about three weeks for that to get over. So it's such an encouraging thought from him you know, to just build me up and, and get me great encouragement. So I'm going to be coughing and hacking for at least another week and a half. If you can tolerate it, I can. If you can't tolerate it, leave. <laughs> so the, the other things about uh, the other apostles, Glenn, they're planting churches kind of all over the world, in a sense. Some tradition has it even into China. But the New Testament isn't recording that. The New Testament is interested in focusing primarily on two people, Peter and Paul, in terms of the expansion, leading the expansion of the gospel. So, I mean, I don't know how to answer your question other than those comments.
1: Okay. And I guess we'd have to study more on the Coptic Church to... Oh, yeah. about that, right? Yeah. A a historian uh, who,
0: uh, well, anyway, I'll give you his name, it doesn't matter, but there's a a historian in the last 15, 20 years has been doing fantastic work. He has been writing a series of histories on the expansion of the gospel in North Africa
1: uh,
0: because those first 150 years, the North African church was one of the strongest, and when I say church, I mean plural, but the whole area. Was one of the strongest churches in the ancient world, and it would remain v- robust and vibrant, of course, until Islam. And in the, in the 600s, when Islam and into the seven hundred roared across northern Africa, they basically destroyed the church. But up to that time, the most robust church in much of the world was the North African church. The great Augustine was from there, as well as others.
1: So, from, from the northern Mediterranean churches, that's where the Orthodox and the Catholic church came from. Um, Eventually, hundreds
0: of years later, but that's right.
1: So what, what kind of kept the Coptic Church out of um, our, our peripheral vision? Um, I really didn't become aware of the Coptics until much, much later in life. <clears throat> the Coptic Church
0: broke away from uh, the Church uh, if you will, the Eastern Church, which was the Senate Church at that time, in 584, and formed their own church. They completely were separate from what was developing in the Western Mediterranean and what was developing in the Eastern Mediterranean. And they developed some unique practices and some unique doctrines. And part of the reason why the, um, well, it wasn't completely leaving it alone, but part of the reason they left it alone is the early leaders of Egypt were tied to the Coptic Church. And even, even Egypt today, which is formerly a Muslim country, uh, Sisi is now the president, they, they have shown great respect, great tolerance for the Coptic Church. They have not, the Coptic Church has not experienced the persecution under Islam that Eastern Orthodoxy has and or uh, Western Christianity has. And a lot of that has to do with the history and the political alliances that were formed very, very early in their history. It's a a unique thing to study. It really is.
1: Thank you. I appreciate the work. Sure. Now, you have in your
0: uh, note packet, if, again, you're interested in these things, uh, Swindoll's synthetic chart of the Book of Romans, which is always a snapshot of the book. You can see the basic argument that he's making and trace it across going from left to right. But what I wanted to do before we actually get into the text, and I'm now in the notes, is on page two. What I'd like to do is give you an overview of the book of Romans. It is, if, if there is any book, and that's in one sense that's true of all, it's true of any book really. But in terms of the books of the Bible, it is. That's why the synthetic chart's so helpful. To get an overview of the book. If you don't have the big picture of the book, sometimes you get lost. What's he really doing here in this chapter or this paragraph or whatever? So what I want to do is walk you through the book, okay? So if you don't want to do this, just shut your hearing aids off or take a nap or something. I'm going to take about 10 minutes to do this. The Book of Romans, I'm at the bottom half of sec page two. The Book of Romans is complex and at some point difficult. However, it is perhaps the most basic introduction to our faith in the Bible. More than any other book, it answers the question what is genuine biblical Christianity? What are the basic themes? All right, chapter one, Paul gives emphasis to the gospel and its power. I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Secondly, as he talks about the gospel, he develops the theme of the righteousness of God that becomes our righteousness through faith. We are justified by faith, which is the thesis of the book of Romans. But Paul has to show something. He has to demonstrate something. Why does humanity need this righteousness? Why did God send Jesus to die a substitutionary death on the cross for our sins? Why is he offering us salvation? Why is he offering us his righteousness, which is imputed to our account, becomes our righteousness, because the human race is in rebellion and in a state of depravity. So chapter 118 through chapter 3, verse 20, he <coughs> walks you through the guilt and depravity of all humanity before God. Because human- I'm gonna, We're going to go into this great detail. We're going to be this summer. Because chapter 1, 18 through 34, humanity has rejected God's revelation in creation. God has revealed himself in creation. It tells us about him. It tells us what he's like. What does Paul say? Humanity has suppressed that truth. Then chapter 2 through about 16, 1 through 16, God has revealed himself in human conscience. Our conscience has an innate sense of right and wrong, an innate sense of, of what is moral and what is immoral. But quickly the human race suppresses the conscience. In verse fourteen, Paul says it is a witness to God. But humanity suppresses that conscience; it becomes hardened, and is no longer sensitive to the things of God. I'll speak to the point of humanity. humanity. All humanity, every single human being. I mean humanity. Okay. What do you I not, Why is that just a denial? Humanity denies. What form is that? Uh, the, you, humanity or denial? Denial? You mean the word denial? Humanity denied. Well, I mean, every, in other words, uh, part of that illustration of what it means is what do they do to the revelation of God and creation? They suppress the truth. So here's the truth. It's clear. What do they do? It suppress it. And so in, 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 in denying that, rejecting that, um, wanting nothing to do with that, They're rejecting God, they're rejecting His revelation, they're rejecting His righteousness, and they're lost, they're depraved. They're all the words that are used in the text throughout these three chapters. I'm not sure I'm answering your question. And then thirdly, I'm working our way through these three chapters, is God's moral law. What has has humanity done with that? They've rejected that. And then of course, the final revelation of God is Jesus. (coughs) <coughs> which is what his incarnation is all about and so on, and humanity has rejected that. So the need for humanity is because they are depraved, because they're lost, because they're invalid, because they've rejected everything that God has done, they need his right. He has to remake the human race. He has to rebirth the human race. He has to give the human race a heart that's sensitive to him. He has to give the human race a righteousness that enables the human race to walk with Him, because God will have nothing to do with sin. That's why, in verse 21 through 31, He sets out the doctrine of justification. God sends His Son, who dies a substitutionary death for us on a cross. He solves our problem. He takes the penalty for sin. He dies. He conquers that penalty by being resurrected. We appropriate that work by faith. We, we accept that by faith. We take Jesus died for me and all that he accomplished for me. You are then justified. And we're, we're talking a lot about this in a minute. Justification is a legal term. It means you're declared righteous. And the righteousness you receive is an alien righteousness. It's not yours. You don't earn it. You don't merit it. You don't deserve it. It's the righteousness of Christ. The Father says to you, it you put, puts his faith in Christ. God said, the Father said, I therefore declare you righteous. You stand before my throne, I declare you righteous. You now are righteous in my eyes. And I can accept you, I can walk with you, I can have fellowship with you. That's what Christ did. And this is is the theme of the book. God solves our problem, which we've rejected everything he's done. Every time he's reached out to the human race, to, to give them an opportunity to respond to his grace, to his mercy. They reject it. They harden their heart. They don't want anything to do with them. So God keeps pushing. His grace is relentless in sending Jesus. <coughs> then Paul must ask a question, and he must answer it. How about the people before Jesus? How were they justified? Because you have a couple thousand years of Jews from Abraham's 21 about 2150 B.C. is when he gets the covenant. So you have 2,000 years. What happened? So who would he pull to the witness stand, Abraham. How was Abraham justified? And that's what chapter four, he was justified by faith. Four times in that chapter, he will quote Genesis fifteen six. Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. So then chapter five of the book, he, he takes us back. Well, where did this start? This problem, this issue of rejection with Adam, it started with Adam. In Romans 5.12, when Adam sinned, the whole race sinned. Every human being inherits the guilt and corruption of Adam. And you say, oh my goodness. So what does this justification mean? In Romans 6 through 8, I can't wait till we get to that. Those chapters, they are massively important for our faith. (coughs) Because Paul shows us how we move from enslavement to sin, bondage to sin, to freedom in Christ. And that righteousness that we receive when we put our faith in Christ, that righteousness we receive now has an additional blessing, and that's the blessing of the Holy Spirit. And it's in Romans 6 through 8 that Paul makes the distinction between justification and sanctification. And what do you know that the event versus the process, the event is we're justified by faith. The process is where a being conformed and transformed into the image of Jesus. That's the walk we have with God when we put our, when we put our faith in Christ. These chapters are extremely important. If people, I've been frustrated over several years in my ministry where people don't understand that. And they're struggling. They come to Christ and they're still struggling. So why am I struggling with sin? Because you're in the process of being sanctified. Why is there a battle inside of me? I do what I don't want to do and I can't seem to do what I really want to do. Because of the process of sanctification. They're the words that Paul uses. And if you don't understand that, you don't understand why you're struggling. All of a sudden, things that didn't bother you are bothering you. Thoughts that you didn't care about, all of a sudden they're bothering you. You're feeling because you're in the process of being sanctified. And that is, that is so crucial for our understanding our faith. And then I'm almost done. Then Paul has a massive question. to do with. What about the Jews? What about my people? Because they rejected Jesus. But most of them did. They didn't acknowledge him as their Messiah. And so in chapters 9, 10, and 11, it, that again is an extremely important passage Paul must answer that question, he does it, and he answers a second question. If they rejected Jesus as the Messiah, is God done with the Jews? And the answer to the question is, no, he's not. He made a covenant promise to them. He will fulfill that promise. And then finally, and I'm done now with the overview, in chapters 12 through 15, what Paul does is he asks and answers this question. What does the justified life look like? A person who's been justified and is in the process of being sanctified, what does that life look like? And that's what he answers in 12 through 15. And he starts by saying, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. God wants to change the way you think about things. And his word is the key to that transformation. His written word is the key to that transformation. And so that's it's a, it's a wonderful passage, too. It's, it's so practical in terms of, it's like, <clears throat> here's the goal that God has for me, 12 through 15. This is the goal. This is the target. And he, he just works through it. it. It affects every area of our lives in this, this total transformation. So it's just a wonderful. And then the last chapter, chapter 16, is just filled with names, dozens of names which is important because it shows to God every single individual is important. Most of these people, we have no idea who they are. But he names them. he make a comment or two about them. They're important to him. Therefore, they're important to God. Therefore, we will see them in heaven. And it reminds us that no matter how insignificant we may seem in the scheme of things, in God's perspective, we're eternally significant. We have work to do. And Paul chooses, it's, it's really wonderful. And by the way, Almost half of the people he mentions in chapter 16 are women, which tells us something about how the early church was a force of liberation for women. They have a whole new perspective about things. Gospel is a liberating term. I did it in five minutes. I don't think I've ever walked through the book of Romans in five minutes. But I just want you to have the overview because... It's like so many things when we study, if we don't have the big picture, we don't even know how the little things fit together. That is no longer true of you. Jim, you made a statement about the Jewish people. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Um, I will have, when we get to 9 through 11. <laughs> <laughs> but okay, I can summarily do it. Yeah, what, do you, what, what do you mean in terms of? Well, you said you know, <clears> he <throat> hasn't forgotten the Jewish people, but the Jewish people have rejected Jesus Christ. For, only, part, Christ. for the most part. Say, for the most part. You know, Jews are Christians. But, I mean, in that gap, how do you explain that gap? Where are the Jews in relationship to Christ? Well, the Jewish people are uh, in an unconditional covenant relationship with God. It's called the Abrahamic covenant. But for them to experience eternal salvation, they must walk in faith with God. They must come to terms with Christ and so on. Um, but God, God has an, an obligation there. Is he going to keep those covenant promises to the Jewish people? The answer is he will. When will he do that? When his son returns. But um, the other part, and, and I don't want to confuse the, 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 the situation here, but that's one of the things he argues in Romans chapter 11, which is very important for us. We Gentiles should look at the Jews rejecting Jesus as a blessing because we have been grafted into the olive tree of blessing. In other words, he says, even though they, and he doesn't mean every single of himself was a Jew, but because many Jews rejected Jesus as the Messiah, God has judicially set them aside for a time so that he can save the Gentiles, and then, he and this is the word he uses, he will graft the Jewish people back into the olive tree of blessing, and that blessing will be greater than the first one, and he talks about, there are categories he develops in that passage that are very important, but Paul wants us to understand as Gentiles, you should be thankful because if they had accepted Jesus as a Messiah, many, 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 many Gentiles would never, ever have had the opportunity, because the program would have been completed. But because the program was not completed, God takes the Jewish, it's what's called the times of the Gentiles, takes the Jewish people off center stage. The Gentiles are now in center stage, but when the, these are the words he uses in Romans 11, when the times of the Gentiles are completed, then the Jewish people are back on center stage. Which is what the book of Revelation is all about. And then in Romans eleven twenty six, 26, then all of this will be saved. All the Jewish people who are alive when Christ comes back will experience salvation. Zechariah puts it this way in Zechariah 12. They will look upon him whom they pierced and believe. A national regeneration of the Jewish people who are alive when Christ comes back is, is, is imminent that will occur. In the middle of page three are some key terms whether this is important to you, but I thought it's, it's kind of interesting. God is mentioned 153 times. Every 26 word in the Bible, uh, in the book of Romans, is the word God. So it's kind of important. The word law appears 72 times, sin 48 times, faith 40 times. If you don't know what these terms mean, now you do know what these terms mean. There are four of them. They're at the bottom of page three. Justification, sanctification, propitiation, and redemption. There are four important words that are just peppered throughout the book of Romans. Justification is a forensic term, it means the legal imputation of righteousness. Now, imputation, if you don't know what that means, it's a big word. Theologians make it up. But what God does is He imputes, He adds to your account. It's like an Excel ledger sheet. What happens is God puts on that ledger sheet at the bottom line, righteous in my eyes. Did you earn that? No, he put it there. In the, in the words, it's a Hebrew phrase in Romans, uh, Genesis fifteen and six. he credits it to your account. So he doesn't. It's, it's like somebody, you know, you have a bank account or an investment account or whatever. Somebody puts a huge thing in there and says you're righteous. He's credited to your account. And that's, that's what God does. Why? Because we put our faith in it. We earn it, merit it, deserve it. But that's what God does. That's the result of faith. Second is sanctification. It's the process by which God brings us into conformity with his son. We are becoming more and more like Jesus. Four, third is propitiation. It's used only four times in the New Testament. It's, it's sometimes translated expiation, which nobody knows what that means. But propitiation is a a hard word. It's not a normal term of our conversation. But it means God's wrath is satisfied. Isaiah 53 speaks of the Father pouring out his wrath on the Son so that he does not have to pour it out on you and me. So we have experienced propitiation. We will never be the object of God's wrath. And that, that's a comforting, important thought, because the Bible makes it very clear that God hates sin, and He will deal in wrath judgmentally with those who reject Him. But if you put your faith in Christ, that will never happen. We are, in the words of 2 Thessalonians, we are not appointed to wrath. And then finally is the word redemption. There are three different words for redemption in the New Testament, but it largely means we are purchased, we are bought from the, it was used in the uh, slave market of the ancient world, to purchase someone out of the slave market and make them free. You purchase them and they become free. That's what Jesus does. And Paul makes it very clear in First Corinthians 6, the price of that redemption was the shed blood of Jesus. So you are, <coughs> you're justified. You are in the process of being sanctified, you have experienced you, will, you, you have experienced the satisfaction of God's wrath in His propitiation, and you have been redeemed. And they, those for other terms are 33 things that happen to you when you trust Christ, but those four are the most important, because it defines our position. It defines our identity. The other night, Peg and I were watching a, a, a film. It was about a girl, a runner, and I won't tell the whole story. But anyway, the key question of the film was, who am I? It was a young runner, a girl. And she had an identity crisis. She was all messed up with a lot of things about her life. She kept, who am I? And it wasn't until she came to know Christ that she could answer that question. And that's a question I think today, in 2022, is probably the most important question. Young men and women, they don't know how to answer that question. Who, who am I? I? Gender issues are fluid. I don't know. What am I feeling? Question like, what are your pronouns? All the kinds of things that just show tremendous confusion. i tell you, the only way to get clarity in answering that question is, come to know Jesus Christ. Your identity is found in him. Not in what the culture is saying, not in what the people are saying about you. What does God say? In that film, this girl comes to know Christ. She was a cross-country runner, very... <laughs> Very credible, But the gal who led her to the Lord said, "I want you to go home. I want you to take the first two chapters of Ephesians and write down everything those two chapters say about you. How does God look at you?" And she had a list. It's like on twelve items, and was, it's really cool because it's an, it's it's how young people, all people really, should be answering that question: Who am I? Because your identity isn't in your job. As you get older, that becomes less and less important. Your identity isn't in your athletic prowess. As you get older, that's not going to be important. It certainly isn't in your looks, and you all agree with that. I mean, what is your identity? And so so, you answer that question by saying, I am identified with Christ, who has justified me, the process of sanctifying me. I'm no longer the object of his wrath. I'm redeemed. I'm a new creation in Christ. I'm just all of those wonderful truths. That's who I am. And that's settled. Once that's settled, then you become all that God wants you to be, no matter how old you are. And so that's what the book of Romans says. It defines, because of the finished work of Christ, it defines our identity. Who am I? Romans 6, 7, and 8 tell you. All right. What's the name of that? Uh. Overcomers, overcomers. Woody. Yes, Does somebody online want to say, ask a question? Yeah, it's Woody, nope. Woody.
1: Those last four on page three are very well explained. I wish I had seen them and understood a little bit more when I first started on the Bible study. But okay. It's spelled out very well. And uh, it's, it's important
0: to me to have this. You know. Good. Oh, you're welcome. Yep, I know that's important to you. Okay. All right. It's 20 minutes after the 12. The introduction is over. We're going to start the book. Yeah, Bill, go ahead. 5-12. Five, 5-what? Five so, is it five twelve? 12 You about original sin. It seems to be a concept. The young folks just stumble all right over it. I'm not at it. I think we got that. I, I just, that whole concept of original sin. All right. An issue. Very foreign issue to this culture today. Nobody even understands it. Because
1: they
0: don't think. No, no. Easy. Well, Bill, um, our civilization has brought a lie, and that lie is that humans are inherently good. That is not a true statement. And um, it seems to me that to challenge that proposition that humans are inherently good. If you start studying history, you start saying, well, you know, I have a real problem with that proposition because I sure don't see a lot of evidence. Saw oh, yeah. I mean, that's just that horrible thing in Texas and, and what's going on in Ukraine and all the things. I mean, just everywhere. And then you see the, I was, well, I'm not going to go down that button trail. But anyway, you see it everywhere. And so, you well, how do I explain this? And you can't say, well, it's all God's fault. We're really good. He wouldn't let that. No, no wait a minute. Go back. Where did this start? The human race has rejected God, rejected His revelation, and we're just living with the consequences. That's the theme of Romans one, two, and three. If you reject God and His revelation, be prepared to live with the consequences. And that's don't accept it. It's got to be some other person or some else, or the government's fault, or my parents' else. fault, or somebody else is to blame for why I am the way I am. Um, God is saying, No, you take a mirror. But I can solve your problem. But you have to put your faith in me. And that's. No, that's it. And even that my value and my worth and my dignity is not sourced in what I do, what I look like, what I am. It's in what God has said about you. You're of infinite worth and value to Him because He created you in His image. You're not a cosmic accident. You're not a result of chance. Okay. Let's start the book. <laughs> I heard an amen there, a finally, or something like that on it. we um, chapter, um, we're, we're not going to get very far because this introduction, these six verses are just loaded with a tremendous truth. But remember, as we talked briefly about the book, wise writing, and so on, Let me read um, the first six verses. Then I want to come back and really take it apart. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power. According to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you, meaning the Romans, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Now, there are a number of things about this introduction, this greeting, this salutation, this beginning that are important. First of all, Paul calls himself a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, <clears throat> that's not unusual. What is unusual is that he focuses on being a servant before he talks about being an apostle. Now, the word for servant is doulos, it's, it's, it's slave or it's bond servant. There's a typical word used in in the ancient Greco-Roman world of a slave, but a bondservant, a house slave. So Paul sees himself in that way, which is really remarkable because the Jews resisted ever saying they're a slave to anyone because they always remembered they were freed from slavery in Egypt. But Paul's willing to say, I am in bondage to Jews. And second, he uses a word called to be an apostle. That's really interesting. It is normal for Paul to say, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. But Paul says, a slave of Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. And he uses a word, that's kaleo, but he uses a word that in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, but in the Greek translation of the Old Testament was used as the prophets. Jeremiah was called. I'm sorry, Isaiah was called. Joel was called. And so Paul is putting himself in line with, as the prophets of old were called, I am called. And that reminds you of Acts 9. Paul did not choose to be an apostle. God smashed into his life on the Damascus Road and called him to be an apostle. So Paul is, again, he's rehearsing and reviewing his identity. Who am I? I am a slave of Christ Jesus. And I was called, just like the Old Testament prophets were called, to be an apostle. Now, apostle is one of those words that we transliterate. We bring letter for letter into the English language. that's why apostle in Greek, apostle in English. So what does that mean? What apostle is a called-out person with the authority of the person calling him. So Paul is sent out, called out by Jesus with his authority. And I, I, like, to, it, or no, I don't like to... It's important to add that last phrase, with his authority. In other words, Paul isn't acting on his own. He's not enabled by his own power. He's called by Christ Jesus for a very specific role and job with the authority of the one who calls him. So he's the authority of God on his shoulders. The mark of the authority of God. So Paul can only be explained supernaturally. Because you know his story. He says in Acts 23, I was persecuting the church with a good conscience. I thought I was doing the things God wanted me to do. What changed that? He met Jesus on his mask of throat. He said, why are you persecuting me? And you know the transformation that resulted. But I want you to notice something else. He was called to be an apostle. Now, this is called apposition in grammar. But you put a little equal sign between apostle and set apart for the gospel. Because that explains why he was called to be an apostle. I was set apart for the gospel of God. And set apart means God. <coughs> Again, this Damascus Road type situation. God took me and set me apart for something very unique, very special. The gospel, the good news. You and Galion, for God. And so he he's, he sees himself in the same stream as the apostles of the Old Testament, with a different responsibility. Not to declare the judgment and oracles of God on Judah, who's going to be sent into captivity like Jeremiah did, but to to communicate the oracles of God about salvation, the gospel, the good news. And then he says something wonderful. He wants to tie this gospel to the Old Testament. He wants to tie this good news to a promise God had made, and so the rest of verse two, which he promised, which what's that relative What's that? What's that uh, defining? The gospel, which he promised beforehand, through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. In other words, this good news which you're going to see, and you already know, is centered in Jesus, was a part of prophecy. And God had promised us. And she says, well, where did he promise it? Well, in Acts 9, 4, Acts 9, in Isaiah 9, for unto you a son has, a son has been given. And then there's nine states. Remember that? He will be mighty one, wonderful Remember, I'm singing the Hallelujah chorus there. But anyway, it, that it promised or the the one that's in Micah, 5, that the Messiah will come in Bethlehem, that the Messiah will bring with him the Holy Spirit, who will who will indwell you, Isaiah 61. I mean, all of those things. This messianic figure, which he promised to the Holy Scripture concerning his son, uh, Psalm 2:7. Psalm one hundred oh, and ten, one, Daniel 7.13, all of those Old Testament prophetic passages that talk about this one, the Son, the Son of God who's coming. And then David, excuse me, then Paul makes two clear statements about him. Who is this Son? First, he's the Messiah. And second, he's the resurrected Son. Who is this son who was first descended from David according to the flesh? Humanly speaking, he's descended from David. Are the Gospels interested in proving that to us? The genealogies. Matthew chapter 1, Luke chapter 4, the genealogy of Jesus. Why are they in the New Testament? They're in the New Testament to prove that Jesus has the right to claim the throne of David. According to the flesh, as a human, he's the God man. But humanly speaking, he has the right to claim the Davidic throne. He is the Messiah. And that is part of prophecy. And so what Paul is doing is he's saying, I I have been set apart for the gospel, which was promised beforehand in the Old Testament prophets. And they said two things about this gospel. One, it's going to center. On the Son of God, who is the Messiah of Israel. He's a descendant from David, according to the flesh. Humanly speaking, he's the Lion of the tribe of Judah. That's how Revelation talks about it. He is the Son of David. That's how he's, <coughs> that's how he's introduced in Matthew chapter 1. one. This is genealogy of Jesus the Christ, the Son of David, and son of Abraham, second. You, you see what Paul's doing. He's just, oh my goodness, he's pouring an enormous amount of truth it's just short, pithy phrases. And you, you have to sit there and you have to meditate. Wow. What does he mean? He's descended from David according to flesh. He's Messiah. He's the son of David. He's the he's the coming king, the promised king that's all through the Old Testament. Oh my goodness. And then secondly, he says, Are you all with me? You've got ten minutes yet. And I, I want to get through Romans chapter 2, verse 3. That's not true. I want to get through verse 6, if I can make it. But the second thing is, this is really an important. The ESV has translated this way, was declared. Do any of you have a different verb than that translation? Verse 4, and was, ESV says was declared. Was shown to be. Okay, that's good. Any other different translations? I don't have the. Is that the NIV? Okay, that's. Oh, okay. New declared. declared. Okay, good. That's usually how it's translated. Was declared. Now, that that Greek word can also mean appointed. It can also mean revealed, and that kept a little bit with what the uh, New Living Translation is saying. And was declared, appointed, revealed. All fit to be what. The Son of God. How was he declared, revealed, appointed to be the Son of God? In power by his resurrection. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, so many things happen with the resurrection. So many things are important about the resurrection. You know, It shows the penalty of death was been paid for sin and all that stuff. But it's also something deeper. This reveals... This declares that he's the son. The father has accepted the son's finished work. Now listen, (coughs) do you see that little phrase, according to the spirit of holiness? Do you see that little phrase? That's telling us something. That the father raised the son through the power of the spirit. Do you understand that sentence? The grammar of this verse is the Father raised the Son through the power of the Spirit. So in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you have all members of the Trinity involved. The Son's the sacrifice. The Father accepts that sacrifice. It's validated by the resurrection through the power of the Spirit. I don't know about you. That's kind of an exciting thing to put together. Our God... In his Trinitarian nature, was involved in the program of redemption. And so you just, oh, this is so exciting here in a sense, because these enormously important things that Paul is trying to do here two titles for Jesus: Messiah, Son of God. Messiah is connecting him with all the Davidic promises of the Davidic covenant. Son of God is all that the Old Testament said about this Son that's coming, this one who will sit at the right hand of the Father, this one who will bring everything into subjection Psalm 2 7, Psalm 110, 1, and others. It's Jesus. And this was validated by the Father, and through the Spirit, He raised Him from the dead. Now He's dumping all this stuff on these Romans, and He's only in verse 4. This is an indication of what's coming. Every day we sit down in this class, you're going to have to put your thinking cap on. You, you can't just passively sit there. Oh, this is really exciting. <laughs> I mean, it just, you have to really process and think through this immensely significant doctrine that Paul is laying on these dear people at Rome. <clears throat> Verse 5. Through whom, okay, the, who's the whom? Santa the of whom? Jesus Christ, our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship. Paul calls himself the apostle of grace. To do what? What follows is, I hate to be grammatical here, but it helps to see this, this, the flow of what he's arguing. There's an infinitive of purpose that follows. He's received grace and apostleship from Jesus. To do what? To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name, Paul is the apostle of grace, the apostle to the Gentiles, to bring about their faith. He will be the instrument God will use to bring faith, to bring the message of the gospel and the subsequent faith, response of faith for many, many, many Gentiles in the Roman Empire. That's how Paul sees himself. Man, if he, did, did Paul have an identity crisis? Nah, he understood precisely who he was and precisely what God wanted him to do. And he went after it. <laughs> with every, He leveraged every ounce of his strength, every, every cell in his brilliant mind, every ounce of energy in his body to accomplish what Christ wanted him to do. And the Holy Spirit empowered him to do it. Now, did you notice that for the sake of his name? That is a euphemism for the glory of Jesus. This isn't for Paul's glory. This isn't for the glory of individuals. This is for the sake of Jesus among all the nations. The gospel is for everyone among all the nations. And he has to add, including you, in the you there is plural, referring to the churches in Rome, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And the word called in verse 6 is the same word that's used called in verse 1. My Bible, I circled the two and drew a line between them. And that's the right-hand side of the railroad track. That's the election, predestination side of the railroad track. And so, this I don't know what other word to use, this majestic, deep introduction to this profoundly important letter is now over. Questions? Got it? So, your your thought paper for next week, 200 words or less, is put in your own words the doctrinal truths. That Paul has revealed to us in the first six verses. I can't wait to read them. They're going to be very <laughs> exciting. But I know none of you will do it. You never take me seriously, but that's all right. All right. Any questions there online that you guys have? So, I want you to pray, but I also want to pray for you to ask you to pray. Oh. oh. Yeah. You mean in four minutes when we're done? Oh, I thought you were done. <laughs> no, I'm not done yet. Oh my goodness! No, I just, no, I was just moving that stuff because I'm done with all the introductory oh, stuff. Yeah. But uh, yes, and I'd really like you to play for our new grandson too. He was born on Sunday morning at four oh, one a.m. Eight pounds five ounces. His name is Luca Andrew. Larry. who are mom and dad? Pardon me. Who's mom and dad there? Joanna. Yeah, yeah, Joanna. England. Yeah, yeah. No, the England. Uh, As far as we know, she's not pregnant, but, uh, you know, (laughs) so this is our third grandson. He's down syndrome. He has uh, uh, not the hard markers of it, but he's got some issues. So we're, and Joanna wrote uh, just a fantastic note. She said, we are uh, proud to be the parents of this dear little child that God has given us. We love and celebrate everything he will represent. We believe he will be a blessing to many. And that was really encouraging for us to see that. So in the, the little guy, we were out with him Sunday afternoon. And Joanna took a, a video of him getting his first baby. He wasn't even a day old. You know, they rub all that stuff off their heads and all that stuff. It was really mean. <laughs> Yawning, I mean, it's just amazing. And you, you look at that and you see, how can anyone not see that as an absolute miracle of God? Every birth, every baby. And it's just, it's so exciting to see that. So we're real excited, Joanna and Andrew really, really thrilled about. They have a neat perspective on the living world. Verse 7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God, third time, called to be saved. So there's the third time you circle called and connected with your line. Three times he's used that word. Now, the typical greeting of Paul then is in verse 8, grace and Pew, or at the end of verse 7 or Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Those typical greetings, I've said this before, I'm going to repeat it. If you were in, in, let's say, Athens uh, in AD 57 when this letter was written, and you see somebody in the street, they would probably say to you, curse Ed, curse Joe." that was just a way of greeting, grace. That was a greeting of the Greco-Roman world. If you were in Jerusalem, and that would actually be true today too, you see a friend walking down the street, you say, shalom, Jim. Maybe my friends in Israel, when I get emails or letters from them, that's how they address the letter. Show them, Jim. What Paul's doing is combining the two, a Greek greeting and a Hebrew greeting. And that illustrates, again, the universality of the gospel. It's not just for the Jews. Gentiles, too. And you could add a theological twist to it. Grace is always the way in which God deals with people. If he dealt with us only in the basis of his justice, there would be no hope for us. He always deals with the human race on the basis of grace. His common grace, his saving grace, is the same grace. The result of his dealing with us in saving grace is peace. Shalom. We're at peace with him. Peace means things are settled between us and God and between one another. So it's a marvelous greeting, very typical of Paul. But it's a marvelous greeting. It's unique in the New Testament. Excuse me. It's unique in the ancient. We have thousands and thousands and thousands of letters. From in the Greek world, and the Jewish world, <coughs> of this time. And they use chris or they use shalom. Paul's the only one that commands it to. is a greeting. And then he does that intentionally. It says something about the gospel. It says something about God's dealing with human rights. All right. The introduction is over. You know all the definitions. You're going to write your thought paper on the doctrine of the first six verses you have a clarity of understanding of the overview of the book, now we're ready to dig in next week. Because now Paul has to give his thesis. Righteousness of God. Why do we need that? And that's what we'll develop in verse 9 and follow. All right? All right, I'm going to pray, okay? Is that all right? Father, we're grateful for the book of Romans. Thank you that, Holy Spirit, you inspired Paul to write this. It is... I guess we could say doctrinally the most important book in the Bible, certainly in the New Testament. And it really helps us to understand our problem, why we need Christ, and the incredible grace that you've showered upon the human race in sending Jesus. He is the Messiah, son of David, according to the flesh. He's also declared, appointed, revealed to be the son of God. And the epitome epitome of that is when you brought him back from the dead through the power of the Holy Spirit. That is the heart of what we believe, the heart of what the scriptures teach. It's all about Jesus. And the book of Romans helps us to so clearly focus on those truths. So we're looking forward to this study. I hope it will be a blessing to all the men, both online and here in the room. We do pray for (coughs) our needs. Pray for all the many things that are going on in our world. We pray for those families in Texas. Oh, I, I can just hardly believe these Dear elementary children, it was 19 of them who were killed yesterday. Monstrous evil, it illustrates again how Satan hates the human race and is willing to go to all ends to just illustrate this hatred of human beings who are the treasures of God's grace, created his image in need of his salvation. So, Lord, as you do and you have that incredible capacity to do that, please, Lord, bring righteous good out of this. Bring things that can only be explained by your good hand. You take evil, and the cross is the best example of that, and somehow bring righteous good out of it. We also pray for the terrible things going on in Ukraine, for those people that are under such horrible conditions, and the imminent food crisis in that part of the world, too. Lord, you see all these things. As the righteous God, we ask you to stay this evil, and we commit this to you. Thank you for these men. Be with them today as they represent you the rest of their lives. And we do pray for our families and I think of our new grandson. Just pray for Lucas today as he's beginning to learn what it's like to live in this world. Take care of him. Watch over him. Give Joanna and Andrew the enablement and energy to serve and represent you to him as well in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you very much.